the counteroffensive, it seems, has begun. President Zelensky said a couple hours ago, if the Russians want to survive, it's time for them to run away and go home. He's been wow. saying a lot of strong things the last couple of days, the last couple of weeks, but uh, especially the last couple of days about how we're not looking for peace at this point. We're looking for victory. Let's talk about the present and perhaps the future of the conflict in Ukraine with Dr. Jeff McCausland, CBS News military consultant, founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, LLC, and a senior fellow at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the Naval Academy. Uh, Mr. McCausland, Dr. McCausland, how are you, sir? Doing very well, guys. Hope you are as well. You think the Russians should be running for their lives yet? Around here, so they should be. Now, whether or not that's going to translate into an overall counteroffensive that pushes them out of a lot of the occupied areas, I think that remains to be seen. The Russians still have significant amounts of combat power, probably still outnumber clearly on the battlefield the Ukrainians in terms of manpower, artillery, and tanks. There's no doubt about it. This uh, offensive around Kherson is shaping up. Uh, but what the extent of it, whether it's going to be a limited offensive to retake that city, not unimportant and would be politically very important to the Ukrainians, or this part of an overall effort that we now see uh, the Russians being pushed back significantly into Crimea or even out of Crimea, I think that's a much broader question. I was just going to ask, though, some of us who are rooting for Ukraine would love to see some sort of sweeping across uh, Kherson of uh, massive forces like it's a Lord of the Rings battle or something like that. That's just not going to happen. What would progress look like? What would victory look like over the next several months for the Ukrainians? I think what victory would look like for the Ukrainians is, first of all, holding the line where it's at right now. It really has basically stagnated uh, since the Russians began a, a secondary offensive in July. Since July, for example, consider this. The Russians have gained the territory roughly the size of Andorra, if you know where Andorra is at, which is about 175 square miles in their much touted offensive. Since their high point, which was back around the 21st of March, however, the Russians have lost territory equal to the size of Denmark. So the Ukraine's ability to maintain that particular line, particularly in the east, prevent them from taking Donetsk province and the entirety of the Donbass. In the south, some progress whereby they would take back a major city like Kherson, a city at one time of about 300,000 people, would be a big political boost domestically to the Ukrainians. They were now back on the offensive. They got the Russians reacting to them instead of the other way around. And would also, I think, uh, hearten support in Europe uh, by many Europeans who are looking towards a very, very cold winter with the prospects of cut in energy supplies coming out of Russia. Yeah, what does the onset of winter do to this whole war? I think it puts it into a frozen conflict because the land area around there, beginning about the middle of October, particularly in the southeast and south, uh, you start getting heavy rains, all the fields turn into mud, and it's going to be very, very hard to conduct massive, you know, armor-heavy offensives at that particular period of time. Then you settle into winter, which can be pretty severe, particularly in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and so we might settle into something that looks like World War One, which is a lot of what we've seen so far. This now having become an artillery war, which at the high point, for example, we have seen the Russians expend up to 60,000 artillery rounds in a single day. Yeah, it was interesting to me as a, a guy who's a, a history nut, military history nut, uh, listening to the strategy and how the Ukrainians need to get to, to the other side of the river to have a certain ground before winter. And I thought, man, you could be describing battles from 100 years ago or 500 years ago, couldn't you? The strategy just never changes. That's exactly right. And I think in many ways, 
the counteroffensive around Kherson, I would actually call a shaping operation. What they're basically trying to do is cut off the Russians from their resupply on the other side of the river by destroying bridges, largely using the HIMARS and other long-range artillery fire, and basically confronting the occupants of Kherson, the Russian occupants of Kherson, the prospects of either being surrounded and cut off from resupply and then fighting it out door-to-door, building-to-building, or withdrawing back across the river and ceding Kherson back to the Ukrainians. Not unlike, frankly, what the Ukrainians did in the, in the uh, Luhansk province, where, where there was a city in which they were on, in this case, the eastern side of a river. They were cut off, and they withdrew their forces rather than fight it out door-to-door and, and, and therefore sustain enormous casualties. We're talking with Dr. Jeff McCausland, CBS News military consultant. Jeff, how concerned are you about the uh, violence going on around that massive nuclear power plant in Ukraine? Very concerned, to say the least. I mean, this this is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe at this particular time, uh, and the prospects that we could have a nuclear meltdown at that particular plant is not, not saying in the realm of the possible, and even the experts in the IEA have been warning that. We've had the G7 industrial powers just the other day demand unimpeded access for U.N., uh, inspectors, which are supposed to come in as early as tomorrow or the next day, to check and see if, in fact, this this plan is secure, if, in fact, it's operational, if, in fact, those maintaining it are still able to do so, and and ensure that the fighting around it has not damaged that particular facility. But when, when you start passing out iodine tablets to thousands of people who live around a particular place, you know the level of potential problem that you're dealing with, and that's what's going on right now. Man, I was just reading from uh, Zelensky's speech last night that he gave to his people about how we're going to take Crimea, Crimea back. This will happen. This is ours. Just as our society understands it, I want the occupiers to understand it, too. There will be no place for them on Ukrainian land. I mean, he's given some pretty Churchillian speeches the last 48, 72 hours. This must... Does Is he just trying to rally people? Do you think it's this big of a counteroffensive? Is there more than meets the eye? What do you think? Well, I think, again, it remains to be seen. I'm a little bit skeptical that we're going to see a massive offensive and the Russians reeling all the way back to Russia. That would be nice, but I just think that the force ratios are not there. I, even any kind of a limited success, taking Kherson, uh, certainly would be a major success because absent Kherson, the Russians the possibility of advancing westward, westward towards Mykolaiv or their real prize, which is Odessa, the major port of Ukraine in the Black Sea, is, is not even possible any longer. And secondly, control of Kherson means you control the fresh water supplies going into Crimea, makes the Russian situation in Crimea much more difficult. And I think this would boost domestic support for the war, which is still pretty high. But the other thing I think what he's doing is really demonstrating what I would call a real leadership aspect, and that is, you know, the uh, optimism, Colin Powell used to say, is a force multiplier. Optimism is a force multiplier, and your team is not going to be any more optimistic. I don't care if you're talking about a sports team or a country or whatever. They're not going to be any more optimistic about how things are going than you are. So I think his efforts to rally his particular country in the face of this invasion by the Russian Federation has been extraordinary and has been one of the major reasons why the Ukrainians have been successful so far. Jeff, we barely have a minute left, but in in that time, if you were advising Vladimir Putin, how would you describe to him the situation he's in? Well, I'd say you're, you're in a tough spot, my friend. 
first of all, you got to remember to keep the first thing the first thing, and you, and you violated that principle by, at the onset of this conflict, your country's economy was stagnant, you had a demographic curve in which your population is actually shrinking, and so you decide the best thing to do is start a war that's going to cost you a billion dollars a day and is getting you nowhere. So you've already violated that principle. You made a couple of assumptions that were wrong. One, that the Ukrainians would quit easily. They haven't done that. Second of all, that NATO would not get us act together. Oh, by the way, they did. Provided massive military assistance and even expanded the size of NATO, bringing in two countries, Sweden and Finland. So the best thing I think you can do right now, my friend, is try to put lipstick on this pig and try to find something that you would declare success. Perhaps the occupation of Luhansk province, part of Donetsk. I would say, let's announce, let's go to a ceasefire, a negotiation, try to get this to be a frozen conflict so we can kind of get our act together uh, as we head into the future. Dr. Jeff McCausland, CBS News military consultant. Jeff, always a pleasure. So enlightening. Thanks a million. Armstrong and Getty. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.